This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You lost all constitutional rights the moment you walked through that door. When the judge sat down there, I sentenced you to 10 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. You walked in that door, you was a number. And the inmates understood that. If you're out there, there's a pass of period. You can hear it, just lay down and do it. Those inmates that were here in the institution during the execution, it had an impression on them that maybe it was still with them to some extent. Maybe they don't think about it anymore, but it, it had a, an impression on them, I'm sure. They wouldn't let me out until we get back to stuff. <laughs> Seven months later, I give it back to them. That was one of the one of the problems we ran into, because you had five or six guys that were sitting in a place smoking a joke and a drinking coffee. Pretty quick, they'd hatched a plan in there to... to get under your skin some way or, or try to figure a way out. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Behind Gray Walls, a podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women who worked and served time there. My name's Anthony. I'm talking to Sky down in Texas. Sky, what's going on? Oh, not much. The uh, the pollen count is up. My my sinuses are on the verge of, of the dam breaking and having my terrible yeah. allergic reactions which i only have in texas so really hoping oh, no. really hoping that uh that that we we are able to stave that off but we will see so how about you you know just just hanging in there it's it's been busy at the pen with school tours mm. and uh events and site rentals and all kinds of things so you know it's it's been a very busy busy month and may is always our crazy crazy month with school tours so just kind of amping up towards that and and then getting ready and then for we'll the hit summer. the summer hours yeah at the pen we always pretend like there's off seasons but really yeah there's not <laughs> there's <laughs> maybe not. maybe yeah. the winter you might get a little bit of a break but once it slightly warms up there it's it's on until october pretty much yeah which is great. Yeah. You know, business is good. People are enjoying their visits. Yep. If you want to come for a guided tour, we're still offering those uh, almost daily, kind of depending on our school tour schedule. But come on a weekend. And uh, also, this week happens to be Idaho Gives. And so please support our agency through Idaho Gives. There's going to be some parties uh, throughout town to celebrate all the nonprofits in the state that support all kinds of different causes and organizations. So you'll hear more about that later in the episode. Awesome. So we get started let's, with some stories yes, here in let's get Boise started. County. We've got, we, it's unlike uh-huh. our other ones thus far, we actually have several inmates to talk about from uh, this county. So I'm excited. Me too. So the first inmate that we are going to talk about, and the county that we're talking about today is Boise County. So we're going to be covering several inmates who were arrested and tried in Boise County. So the first one we're going to talk about is Ah Hood. And our sources are some Idaho World articles and then an article about the Burlingame Sewer Tree 1868 from the Office of the Historian at history.state.gov. So, throughout the United States in the mid-1800s, newspapers, journalists, and everyday citizens were very concerned about Chinese immigration. In 1868, the United States signed the Burlingame Sewer Treaty with the government of Xing, China. This treaty attempted to ease tensions between China and the United States, including allowing more immigration of Chinese citizens into the U.S. It also, quote, represented a Chinese effort to limit American interference in internal Chinese affairs, end quote. 
So among other things, the Berlin-Game Sewer Treaty promised China the right to free immigration and travel and protection of Chinese citizens while in the United States, ensuring a steady flow of Chinese immigrant laborers. And while this was the official government response, that approach was not very popular with the average white American citizen. And anti-Chinese sentiment was rampant throughout the country, with concerns over Chinese laborers taking jobs and wealth, and fears that non-Christian religion and morals would take over traditional Christian and American moral values. Unfortunately, as you have seen in previous episodes, and we'll see in this episode, prejudice against Chinese immigrants did not bypass the Idaho Territory. On April 22, 1869, the Idaho World reported that, per the Idaho statesman, the Union Pacific Company and the Central Pacific Company were both building railroad tracks to a place that the newspaper called Monument from both the East and the West. And I believe this was referring to Promontory Summit, Utah, where less than three weeks later the Transcontinental Railroad was completed. So yeah, I, yeah, I've, I've actually got to visit that Is once. it cool? It was really I cool. haven't seen it. Uh-huh. It's a great little museum, yeah. The Union Pacific employed Irish laborers, while the Central Pacific employed Chinese laborers, and the journalists of the Idaho world seemed concerned about what would happen when the railroad was finished, especially where the Chinese workers might go. Quote, when the tracks are completed, about 10,000 laborers and others on the work will be out of employment, and many of them will come to Idaho. Some of the Chinamen were already on the way in. And the commission of robberies and murders along the road is of daily occurrence. It is strange, however, that we hear of none of these crimes by robbery and murder by daily stage passengers, end quote. As we know, after construction on the railroad was completed, many Chinese immigrants moved to the West to participate in the mining industry. It is unclear if Ahud, alternatively referred to as Ahun, spelled both H-O-O-N and H-O-U-N, had been a railroad worker, but it seems likely that he had been involved in mining in Idaho in some way. Unfortunately, we have no details about his early life or his crime. All we know is on October 13, 1869, Ahud was indicted on charges of robbery and assault with intent to commit murder, and he pleaded not guilty. About a week later, he was sentenced to five years, quote, in penitentiary at hard labor the first three days of every year in solitary confinement, end quote. Per the Idaho Triweekly Statesman, there was some question as to if Ahud was the person who committed the crime, but no substantial response ever came of this speculation. The first 11 prisoners were transferred to the new territorial prison on March 21, 1872. Less than a month later, the inmates tested its security. On April 27, 1872, the Idaho Triweekly Statesman reported, quote, Two of the penitentiary's birds, Al Priest and An Gao, the Chinamen, escaped from the penitentiary on Thursday about 5 o'clock in the afternoon, end quote. As the newspaper told it, on the late afternoon of April 25th, most of the 11 inmates were working outside of the walls while Al Priest was working in, quote, the backyard and the Chinaman, end quote, was working in the kitchen. Through some tricky maneuvers, Priest managed to escape. And for more details, stay tuned for Al Priest's story next week. Quote, in the confusion, the Chinaman took to his legs and followed Priest, and before either of the guards could start after them, they were out of sight among the hills above the penitentiary, end quote. It was believed that neither of the escapees would ever be caught again. Three days later, the Idaho Tri-Weekly Statesman wrote a correction, admitting that the escaped Chinese inmate was, in fact, a hood and not on Gao. The writers did not seem overly concerned, however, about either arresting or reporting on the wrong person. Quote, U.S. Marshal Pinkham tells us he is quite sure of catching Ah Hood. 
We suggest if Hood is the wrong one, Pinkham cannot catch the guilty one, he should catch some other Chinaman, if time has got to be served out. One poor innocent fellow had not ought to serve the whole of it when any other would do just as well, end quote. This is not just shocking in 2022. It was shocking even when it was published. On June 7, 1872, the Connecticut Western News, all the way in Salisbury, Connecticut, wrote a small column criticizing this blatant indifference, at best, with which the statesman treated this mistake. Quote, Ahud is a Chinaman who was in the penitentiary of Idaho serving out a five-year sentence, but who, with celestial ingenuity, has managed to break jail after abiding only 30 months. To show the extreme care with which justice is administered when a heathen Chinese is in the dock, the Idaho statesman may be quoted, which says that, according to the report, Ahud is the wrong Chinaman and not the one who committed the crime at all. Never mind, says the statesman. If the constable cannot catch this one, he should catch some other Chinaman so that the poor innocent fellow will not have to serve out the whole sentence, end quote. Oh, wow. Yeah. And again, just a reminder, that's, that's the language both of the statesman and of the Connecticut Western News. That's obviously any prejudice language obviously is not coming from us. Yeah. Yeah. This escape drew criticism from the Idaho world who said, quote, if the Boise City prison won't hold the convicts, they had better be sent back to the basin, end quote. Though this conveniently ignores the fact that the jail at Idaho City had a terrible track record for escapes, including one only a month before the inmates were moved to the prison in Boise. In fact, it seems that Marshall Pinkham was so unconcerned with the fact that Ahud escaped that he only put out a monetary reward for Al Priest's capture. We have no record of him ever being caught or seen in the area after his escape. In fact, it appears that nothing was ever heard of Ahud again. Ahud's story is one that most of our tour guides tell. Mm -hmm. Uh, He is number one of 90 men who escaped from the institution, never to be recaptured. So, you know, he kind of is the top of our list of most wanted (laughs) at the Idaho State Penitentiary. I remember when I was putting together my tour outline and and was taking tours with other people that there was speculation. And and of course, we'll never know. And I don't know if this was simply speculation on the tour guide's part. But, you know, the speculation is either that he sort of disappeared into the, the Chinese population in Boise. But honestly, if I were him and I got away with it... I'd be heading out of town and, and, you know, really getting out of Dodge. But I, you know, just have to wonder whatever happened to him. Well, next we will actually move on to another Chinese man named An Gao. And our sources today are the Idaho World and the Idaho Statesman from newspapers.com. Because of Ang Gao's Chinese nativity and the fact that he was probably an immigrant who did not often appear in things like censuses, tracing his early life and much of his life even in Idaho is nearly impossible. In April 1869, the Idaho World reported that claims on Moore Creek in Boise County were being, quote, actively worked and between three and four hundred Chinamen are employed day and night in the mines, end quote. With so many miners in this place, problems were likely to arise, especially between groups of white miners and groups of Chinese miners, because of the anti-Chinese sentiment discussed in Ah Hood's story. Unsurprisingly, Chinese miners and workers banded together as a group for support and camaraderie. However, these groups could get violent and were often labeled as gangs by newspapers and other white miners. 
On June 22, 1871, the Idaho World published a letter written to the editor by a man named C.H. Enos from Oro Grande, Idaho, who was writing to give, quote, a correct account of the affair, end quote, in which he had taken, quote, an active part, end quote. Some of the letter reads as follows. Quote, this place during all the past winter has been infested with a gang of Chinese thieves and counterfeiters led by three desperados formerly of Idaho, Henley, Ah Teng, and Sam Singh. They were accused by their countrymen not only of thieving and making bogus gold dust, but of having a hand in the murder of Cahill on Moore Creek last fall and various other crimes before coming here. They have been found here repeatedly with stolen goods in their possession and have escaped punishment by simply giving up the property stolen. We, being without a justice of the peace or any legal redress, concluded that it was time the gang was broken up, end quote. Enos goes on to tell the story of how the local miners carried out a citizen's arrest of the trio and held a makeshift trial, sentencing them, quote, to leave the camp by 12 o'clock next day or be severely dealt with, end quote. Three days later, the miners heard that the Chinese men were camped three miles away from Oro Grande, quote, and did not intend to leave until they had killed two white men and made a big raise if they had to burn the town to do it, end quote. Enos led a small group of miners to the camp, where he claimed a firefight ensued in which the miners killed all three of the Chinese men. These miners went to the police and, quote, after having a thorough examination, were fully acquitted, the verdict being justifiable homicide, end quote. Within that first paragraph, Enos mentioned that these three Chinese men had a hand in, quote, the murder of Cahill on Moore Creek last fall, end quote. This refers to an event that happened on October 19, 1870, which, according to the Idaho World, was the murder that An Gao was involved. Cahill was Edward Ed Cahill, who, per the Idaho Statesman, was born in Callan, County Kilkenny, Ireland, around 1835. By the fall of 1870, Ed was working at a quartz mill called the Old Illinois, about six or seven miles from Idaho City. Though the Idaho world does not make the details clear, Ed, quote, had some trouble with a company of Chinese in regard to water and was killed by them. We understand that there were three of the Chinamen together and that Mr. Cahill was alone, end quote. A miner who was camped, quote, a little distance away from the place, end quote, heard several shots fired and rushed over to find Ed on the ground dead, having been shot through the neck and head. According to the Idaho World, on November 3rd, four Chinese miners were involved and all four were arrested. Three of them were discharged a few days after the incident, quote, there not being sufficient evidence to convict, end quote. The fourth, however, was committed to jail to await examination of the grand jury. Throughout the articles about this incident, None of the names of the supposed perpetrators were given. On May 2, 1872, the Idaho World, reporting on the April 1872 escape from the penitentiary, stated that Ang Gao was, quote, the Chinaman who killed Cahalan on Moore's Creek about two years ago, end quote. After searching through newspaper records with what little details we can get from the article, including the victim's name, which, again, was misreported as Cahalan rather than Cahill. We can reasonably conclude that the Chinese man who was being tried for this crime was indeed An Gao. An Gao was tried for murder through the end of May 1871. On Wednesday, May 31st, the jury returned a verdict of manslaughter, and he was sentenced to four years in prison. Other than the misreporting that it was An Gao rather than Ah Hood, who escaped from the penitentiary in April 1872, there are no further details about Angao's time in prison, when he was released, or what happened after he served his time. I find that story so interesting, and it, and it really was an interesting journey finding it. 
mm-hmm. because before I found that article that misreported the, the victim's name as Kahalen, I had nothing on him. And searching on Gao in the newspapers in the 1870s was so difficult. And again, he doesn't even come up as named in any of these articles anyway. Um, and so it's interesting because you have to wonder, was he actually involved? Or is this another incident of, well, it was we think it was a, a quote-unquote Chinaman who did it. And, mm-hmm. you know, so we'll just get anyone to serve time for it. Or was he actually involved? I, You know, it's so hard to tell. It's so hard. It's been a difficult research season. And yeah. So many unanswered questions. Mm-hmm. I think that's the most unsatisfying part of this. But, uh, you know, hopefully maybe maybe other researchers might pick up the torch and find some some mentions somewhere in, in a smaller newspaper that we don't have access to, and hopefully someday we can come to some uh, better realizations with some of these stories. Hey everyone, as I mentioned in the beginning, this week is Idaho Gives, a program of the Idaho Nonprofit Center dedicated to fundraising for Idaho's nonprofits. Your donations have a powerful impact on local communities and organizations. All donations to the Foundation for Idaho History supports the Ray Knight Memorial Field Trip Fund that our agency offers. The Ray Knight Memorial Field Trip Fund helps under-resourced schools and students from across Idaho offset field trip and transportation costs so they can experience Idaho's history firsthand. Field trips enrich students learning through experiences they simply can't get by reading a textbook. With your help, Thousands of Idaho students can experience history through a field trip to the Idaho State Museum, the Old Idaho Penitentiary, and historic sites in Hanson and Franklin, Idaho. When students step out of the classroom into the real world, they begin to make connections between textbook lessons and the community around them. Also, on Thursday, May 5th, join the Idaho State Historic Preservation Office and Ward Hooper to kick off Idaho Archaeology and Historic Preservation Month with an unveiling of this year's poster. This will take place downtown at Ward Hooper's Gallery starting at 5 p.m. We hope to see you down there. All right, so our next and last inmate from Boise County is Dennis Crowley, and the sources that we have on him are Idaho Statesman and Idaho World articles from newspapers.com, and then some Ancestry.com records. Now, Dennis Crowley's life, as usual, is unclear, though unlike many of our other subjects, we at least have a lead on his early life. In two census records, 1870 and 1880, Dennis claimed that he was born in Ireland between 1830 and 1832. The Idaho statesman, however, claimed that he moved from Michigan, his childhood home, to the California gold fields in 1850, where he remained for nearly a decade. He first came to Idaho in 1861, first to Orofino, before settling in the Boise Basin in 1863. It is unclear which is true. Regardless, many Idahoans considered Dennis an Idaho pioneer. The first mention of Dennis in Idaho newspapers is in November 1868, when a legal case against Dennis, brought by Young and Small, probably two different people, which is hilarious, (laughs) hilarious combination of names, (laughs) when that case was dismissed. There are no other details about this case, unfortunately. 
In February 1869, the Idaho World reported that Dennis owned a ditch which aided in mining efforts in Boise County with another man, Thomas Burke, near Placerville. In 1870, Dennis married Henrietta Kulitz, an immigrant from Bavaria, Germany, who had one teenage daughter. The 1870 census places the Crowley family at Granite Creek, Boise County, near Placerville. By the first couple years of the 1870s, Dennis was incredibly well-respected throughout Boise County. He helped put together a ball for Washington's birthday on February 22, 1871, as well as a St. Patrick's Day party on March 17, 1871. According to the Idaho World, the camp that sold the most tickets to a St. Patrick's celebration would host the celebration. Quote, Granite Creek carries off the palm, 107 tickets having been sold at that place. The celebration will be held in Crowley's Hall. The oration by Dr. Healy being delivered in the afternoon, and the ball will come off at night in the same place. We predict a most pleasant time for all who attend. End quote. All of the proceeds from ticket sales would go to the widow, Mrs. John Foy, and her three children. According to an advertisement from the newspaper from March 9th, Dr. James Healy would give a presentation on, quote, the birth, bondage, and missionary life of St. Patrick, end quote, at the party. Dr. Healy was the county physician, and I found some stories of the operations he did, including one at the beginning of March 1871, in which a man who was serving a sentence in the territorial prison named John Bradley had broken his leg in an escape attempt the previous year, but it never truly healed. Dr. Healy had to re-break John Bradley's leg in order to straighten it and place it correctly a second time. Yikes. On the day of the event, the weather was poor and the mud made it difficult for some ticket holders to come, quote, but a good many made their way to the fort nevertheless, end quote. Besides the lecture by Dr. Healy about St. Patrick, the patron saint of Ireland, the night included a foot race, a wheelbarrow race, and a jumping match. The winner jumped 10 feet and 2 inches. (laughs) <laughs> which is high to me. Maybe I'm just, I don't jump well, but that seems high. I don't think John Bradley jumped in this race. <laughs> no, <laughs> really? I. But his leg was, was re-broken, so it's fine now. <laughs> the Idaho World reported that the ball was a complete success, raising $761.10. $17,834.2021. That's a lot of money for Mrs. Foy and her children. Resolutions were printed after the event, thanking Dr. Healy for his sermon, which was, quote, listened to with attention and satisfaction by those present, end quote. The details of Dennis Crowley's crime are a little unclear. It seems that Crowley and another man, Dennis McCarthy, or McCarthy, newspapers use both, were both working in Granite Creek near Placerville, north of Idaho City. The two had some kind of disagreement on March 21st, 1871. According to the Idaho World, on March 30th, 30 to 40 witnesses who police interviewed after the crime, quote, knew little, if anything, in regard to the affair, but whose testimony related entirely to a misunderstanding between the parties on the day preceding the killing, which arose out of a report derogatory to the character of Mr. Crowley and which he had traced up to McCarty, end quote days before, on March 25, 1871, the Idaho tri Statesman reported that, quote, the altercation was in relation to some hydraulic hose. Both drew pistols and several shots were fired, end quote. No matter the reason for it, Dennis Crowley had killed Dennis McCarty. 
After the incident was over, Dennis Crowley, quote, walked over to Placerville and surrendered himself to the officers, acknowledging that he had killed McCarty and then came to Idaho City for counsel, accompanied by an officer, end quote. McCarty's body was carried to the local Catholic church where a wake was held for his friends on the evening of March 21st and a funeral was held the next day. His body was buried in a cemetery near Placerville. Dennis's jury was called, and his trial began with Major R.E. Foote and Major Joseph W. Houston prosecuting and Colonel S.A. Merritt and George Ainsley working on Dennis's defense team. The jury was dismissed to deliberate on June 29th. They were out all night and returned their verdict on the morning of June 30th. Dennis was found guilty of murder in the second degree, and Judge Whitson sentenced him to 15 years in prison. According to the statesman, quote, there was considerable feeling among the countrymen of the defendant adverse to the prisoner, yet he bore himself bravely during his trial, which has resulted so disastrously to him. The family of Crowley have the heartfelt sympathy of all who are acquainted with him, end quote. During the Idaho City Territorial Prison jailbreak in February 1872, which was discussed in the first episode of the season and will be briefly discussed in the Ada County episode, Dennis was one of the prisoners who refused to leave when the others seven fled. In his efforts to try to stop the others from leaving, he was, quote, badly beaten over the head, end quote. He was transferred to the new penitentiary with no problem, and it seems like he served his time in prison without any problems. From Chicopee, Massachusetts, Catherine McCarthy, widow of Dennis McCarthy, wrote a scathing letter on April 27, 1872, saying, quote, Whoso sheddeth man's blood by man shall his blood be shed, is not only a maxim of the Bible, but is also the express word of God. This murderer's blood has not been shed, though he has left your petitioner a widow and her two infant children, aged respectively seven and four years, orphaned. Nor does your petitioner desire the forfeit of this man's life, but she does from the depths of her widowed heart ask your excellency not to extend any false mercy to this man. She has been given to understand that this man's friends have petitioned your excellency for a pardon for him, and that your excellency states in reply that you would review the evidence, and if you thought him innocent, you would pardon him. If not, you wouldn't interfere. She most respectfully represents to your excellency that 12 of his fellow citizens, after hearing all the evidence that was heard on oath, have deliberately found him guilty. You may pardon him, but no earthly haven, after that solemn verdict, can acquit him of the crime of killing my poor husband, and your petitioner further most respectfully requests your excellency not to show this man any more mercy. His life has been spared, and surely that is mercy enough for so great a criminal. Your excellency's most obedient servant, Catherine McCarthy, widow of Dennis McCarthy. End quote. Governor T.W. Bennett received signatures for Dennis's release from what he termed, quote, the leading and responsible men, end quote, of Boise County. He wrote that Dennis had served his time and called for his release on January 13, 1873. Governor Bennett reviewed the testimony given at Dennis's trial and that he had received a petition signed by the, quote, large majority of the people of our county including our most prominent citizens and public officials, end quote. Three days later, the Idaho World reported that Governor Bennett had indeed signed the pardon for Dennis Crowley. Quote, the lesson has been a severe one to Crowley, and we have no doubt but that he will so conduct himself as to prove that the clemency of the governor has not been unworthily bestowed, end quote. So despite that letter, that pleading letter... He still got out. Still got out. After his release, Dennis returned to his family at Granite Creek. Nearly a year later, on December 20th, 1873, Dennis and Henrietta welcomed a son, Charles, into the family. 
though he was incorrectly listed as their grandson in the 1900 census. Dennis owned substantial interest in mining ground and ditches of the Granite Creek Ditch Company, which he sold in 1886. By the 1890s, the Crowleys moved to Sweet, Idaho, about 30 miles away from Granite Creek. In both Granite Creek and Sweet, Dennis and his son began developing reputations as upstanding citizens within the community. Dennis was named a delegate to the Democratic State Convention in 1894, while Charles was a member of the Modern Woodmen of America, a fraternal organization that sold life insurance, annuity, and investment products. Dennis was constantly in the newspapers, mostly for good reasons, for the rest of his life. In 1882, the Idaho Semi-Weekly World reported that Dennis was injured when he fell over a 20-foot high bank and dislocated his right hip. A Dr. Rothwell reduced the joint and, quote, Mr. Crowley is doing as well as can be expected under the circumstances, end quote. In August 1900, the Idaho Statesman reported that Dennis and Henrietta were taking their very first rail trip ever, quote, Mr. Crowley seemed to be in no wise abashed by the contemplation of his life experience and boarded the train as if he had done nothing else all his life. On their way to the station in the bus, he asked Mrs. Crowley if she was at all afraid and received a strongly negative answer, end quote. I think that's such a cute little story. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's like me getting on a boat. I'm always like, oh, are we sure? <laughs> Do we have to? Well, and I love that they were just like, he boarded it like he had never done anything else all his life. It's like, it's a train, guys. What are we talking about? But, I mean, to be fair, at this time, this was also the time that they thought that if uh, women boarded trains, it would go so fast that their uteruses would fly out of their bodies. So, Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> so, his, are you kidding me? I wish I was. The, the ideas that people had about women on trains is beyond the pale of anything we could ever imagine so <laughs> ridiculous oh, man. at the beginning of september 1900 dennis's son charles broke his leg while trying to fix some equipment on the family farm three weeks later charles began getting sicker and dennis rushed him to the saint alphonsus hospital in boise where within a matter of hours charles succumbed to blood poisoning dennis was devastated According to the Idaho Statesman, quote, the father of the young man is almost prostrated. He went east not long ago, and just before his departure, and as an evidence of the love he bore for his son, he deeded Charles practically all his property, end quote. Only a few months after Charles' death, in February 1901, Dennis Crowley advertised in the Idaho Statesman that he was selling his ranch in Suite, which comprised of 320 acres, water rights, and, quote, also a bunch of cattle, end quote. His ranch was sold to a Salt Lake City couple a year later, and he got involved in buying and selling real estate in Boise for the next several years. On November 9, 1904, Henrietta died at St. Alphonse's Hospital in Boise, the same hospital at which Charles had died just four years before after suffering from a stroke. So now comes the weirdest bit of confusion about the end of a man's life that I have ever researched. So Bear with us as we try to make sense of what happened here. So, interestingly, the Idaho Statesman originally reported that Dennis Crowley died on November 5th, 1905, and that his real name was Gerard H. Gock. 
What? Yeah. This obituary claimed that he was born in 1824 and had earned the nickname Governor, and, quote, he was known as one of the most <laughs> liberal and generous men of all the mining camps. No miner, either friend or stranger, was ever known to go past his cabin door without being invited to partake in Gox hospitality, end quote. And it's actually this article that states, if you remember from the beginning of his story, that Dennis was born in Michigan and migrated to Idaho from the California gold fields. And weirdly, this article also claimed that he went by the name Dennis Crowley in only the state of Idaho, but it does not make clear why he would have changed his name in the state. And this is the only article that makes this claim. There are no other articles prior to this that say that his name is Gerard Gawk. There are ancestry records that show a Gerard Gawk who was born in 1825 in Germany and who died in 1905, but there's no evidence whatsoever that he ever went by the name Dennis Crowley. So I don't know where the statesman got their information that Dennis Crowley was this man named Gerard Gawk. However, the gravestone of Dennis Crowley next to Henrietta's grave states that Dennis died in 1915. Interestingly, it stated that he was born in 1819. There are records of a Dennis Crowley born in Ireland in 1819, but those records place that Dennis Crowley in Massachusetts through the 1860s, though he eventually ended up in Idaho. It is perhaps possible that because the rest of his family had passed away prior to his death, the people who reported Dennis's death accidentally used the birth date of the wrong Dennis. The Idaho Statesman, which reported on Dennis's death in 1915, stated that he died at St. Alphonse's Hospital at 90 years of age. This would make his birth year 1825. It seems that there may be no clear answers about Dennis Crowley, other than he was one of the first inmates of the Idaho State Penitentiary in 1871. Yeah, that end of his life where I just was like, Okay, so because there was a Dennis Crowley who was in Idaho around the same time as this Dennis Crowley, and he was born in 1819, but that would have made everything else we know about Dennis incorrect, Our Den- the, the Dennis right. that we talked about earlier. And so I just really had no idea what to do with any of this information because none of it matched up. So that was the best guess that I could come up with. So... <laughs> Um, so interesting. Yeah. So that is the end of our inmate section. Um, so now we'll talk a little bit about Boise County mining history, though a lot of that was actually covered in that brief episode we did about the early mining uh, in the state and territory because Boise County in the Boise Basin was such a massive region uh, for gold in the earliest years. So um, this actually, the section is going to be a little bit shorter than before, but but bear with us. There is still some information, uh, interesting information to be found in this. So sources besides the one I list, the ones I listed in the very first mining episode, which again is a whole chunk of them. Um, I did find some other ISHS reference series, which are the Rocky Bar Mines and the effect of mining in the economy of the Boise region. And then I had uh, three Wikipedia pages about Arastra, Stamp Mill, and Idaho City. 1862 was a big year for the Boise Basin Mining District, with the discovery of gold by a Florence party led by George Grimes. Within two months, the area's first major community, Pioneerville, was founded on October 7th, quickly followed by Idaho City and Placerville in December. 
Within a year, word reached mines in Auburn, Oregon, roughly 200 miles west, and nearly 1,500 miners rushed to the Boise Basin. At the height of the gold rush to the Boise Basin, a population of 20,000 made it to the largest of Idaho's mining communities and the biggest gold rush in America during the Civil War. In 1864, Idaho City alone had a population of 7,000, making it the biggest city in the West at the time, bigger than even Portland, Oregon. As we know, mining in the Boise Basin area was so big that it threatened to take power away from the Washington territorial government centered in the Puget Sound region hundreds of miles north. In fact, mining in the Boise Basin was so intensive that entire hillsides were washed away using hydraulic mining, even undermining the very foundation of houses. So this original gold rush made the Idaho Territory, and Boise County specifically, quote, the main attraction in the Pacific Northwest, end quote. Around the same time, quartz discoveries gave the mines more stability, leading to even more expansion and the founding of the city of Boise in 1863. The low deposits in the Boise Basin economically supported the region, along with Owyhee County mines, for decades. In 1864, what one Idaho State Historical Society reference series article calls, quote, the new Boise mining empire, end quote, was expanded with mining at Atlanta in the middle of the Boise National Forest. With Atlanta and the discovery of other Boise County mines, the regional economy was stabilized, eventually aided by agriculture and irrigated farming tracks in the area. Part of the reason that mining lasted so long in the Boise Basin was because of the yearly water distribution pattern. The mining season included the months when high water had gone down enough to permit placer mining, but water had not dried up entirely, essentially from spring into late summer or early fall. Working day and night was necessary to try to get as much metal out of the ground as possible before water levels were too low. Because mining could only be done between six and nine months out of the year, plastering in the basin continued for many more seasons than would have been possible if the gravel in the rivers had been processed continuously. Though Placerville was located at the mouth of the Harris Creek, Idaho City, which was built right along both Moores Creek and Elk Creek, made Idaho City larger and more fruitful because miners there could maintain their efforts for longer than at any other mining town. By 1864, a piece of mining equipment called an arastra was common around South Boise and the Boise Basin quartz mines. Arastras are mills for grinding and pulverizing silver and gold metal ore, which have been used in the Mediterranean since ancient times. During the imperial period in the 16th century, the Spanish introduced arastras to the New World. Arastras consist of two flat-bottomed stones placed in a circular pit and connected to the center post by a long arm. A human, mule, or horse could then push the arm to drag the middle stones over the ore on the bottom stone, crushing it into small particles. Using arastras for mining was slow, but required little capital investment and little extra material to process the ore. In the 1864 and 1866 seasons, some mining companies brought in stamp mills, a machine made of vertical stamps which crushed the rock and ore as they slid up and down on a rotating shaft. Stamp mills processed the ore much quicker, but initial costs for installation were exceptionally high. By 1866, most of the stamp milling operations had failed after just one season. Because of the difficulty and expense of quick ore processing equipment, further developments in the country in the county stalled. Some mine owners continued to get major properties in production for several years, but by 1870, load sites were largely shut down. 
Idaho City remained one of the largest mining camps in the county and territory through 1870, especially after Chinese miners, mostly displaced from the building of railroads in the West, as we heard earlier in the episode, poured into the city in 1868. Operations would begin to boom again after major transportation improved with the building of railroads to the area. Boise had been a western terminal for Ben Holiday's Overland Stage Company, but this stage route moved south to Salt Lake and Denver, and then east to Virginia City, Montana, bypassing Boise County completely. In terms of railroads, which were crucial to the expansion and success of mining ventures, it would take years to get consistent service to Boise County. While there had been some smaller lines that stopped several miles often 20 miles or more, outside of the Boise Basin, the Southern Pacific Company finally brought continual rail service to southwestern Idaho. Thanks to the transportation revolution in the southern part of the territory, mining in Boise County started up again. The Boise Basin would become one of the biggest mining districts in the state, producing 2.9 million ounces of gold, about $20 billion worth, through the 1980s. That is so much money. (laughs) Yes, we, as we've continuously talked about this season, are a very wealthy state Mm -hmm. in terms of mining and the the precious metals we've, our ancestors, our pioneers pulled out of the ground. Mm -hmm. It's incredible. Yeah. Well, that is it for our Boise County episode. Yeah. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you support our agency and the Foundation for Idaho History this week for Idaho Gives. And remember, do your own time. Do your own number. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show, but it helps others find us as well. If you're interested in finding out more about the podcast and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, follow our Facebook group at Behind Gray Walls Podcast. And we have a podcast Instagram as well. You can find us on Instagram at Behind Gray Walls Pod. <laughs>